we are so self-focused and self-absorbed to believe that unless we see it, we touch it, we count it, we experience it, that God is not at work. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Welcome to the show where we talk about topics in modern Christianity that are so challenging, they require us to be grounded in something much bigger than ourselves. If you're here, you have likely found yourself hungry for something deeper. You want to find answers for how to hold on to your faith after seeing religion be twisted in a way that has somehow become bad news instead of good. I'm here for all of that too. I'm here for the spiritual wrestle, and I'm here to learn more ways that people are finding hope in a God that interrupts our norms and expectations. You might be asking, can business really have a kingdom effect? Why combine business and missions? You're wondering is valid. Statistically, businesses had a very harmful effect on vulnerable communities. More than one-third of all global profits are made in forced labor exploitation, including nearly $8 billion generated in domestic work by employers who use threats and coercion and pay little or no wages. Business can and has been used for so much evil, but it also has the power to be used for so much good. It's through good business that financial burdens are lifted safe working conditions are established, and authentic relationships are formed. That is why we are on mission at Kindred Exchange to empower entrepreneurs around the world and to equip our community with the resources they need to begin to shift the way they approach mission work. Join us as we pave the way for a better form of impact, one that is rooted in humble partnerships and Kindred Exchanges. To learn more or become a monthly donor today, go to kindredexchange.co slash donate. Today, I am so excited to have Mektes Hadith with us on the podcast. Uh, Mektes is the founder and executive coach of Just Missions, an online community that elevates diaspora voices and equips Western allies to become mutual partners for the work of the gospel. Originally from Ethiopia, she moved to the United States in 2003 and under, earned a BS in communications from Liberty University and a master's degree in organizational leadership from Columbia International University. She's also the project director of the Racial Justice and Reconciliation Collaborative for the National Association of Evangelicals. Nahedis has worked in several churches, building discipleship and outreach strategies that are holistic in their approach to include people on the margins. She and her family lived in South Carolina, and I am just thrilled to get to chat with you today, Mekdes, because I have found your book to be one of the most poignant and important pieces of literature that I have read as of late around the topic mm-hmm. of missions, uh, missiology, evangelism, and cross-cultural connection. Thank you for this incredible work and your latest book that just came out. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. I'm also a fan of Kindred Exchange, um, and so it's, it's a joy to be with you. Well, I know that uh, writing a book is is not a, a small task, and especially when you are writing on topics that push against uh, a, a common or a, a maybe a mainstream way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so uh, your latest book, A Just Mission, the title is Laying Down Power and Embracing Mutuality. It's beautiful, but the words inside are just 
packed with punch mm. after punch after punch. Uh, I was finding myself writing in the margins and highlighting on almost every page. Mm. So I am really, really impressed with everything that you were able to cram here. And I know we have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cram is a good word for it. There was a lot to, <laughs> to put in there. <laughs> Well, you held me to the last chapter and we'll, we'll get as much covered in this short time that we can. So I want to start even in the foreword of your book written by Latasha Morrison, who I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with her wonderful work with Be the Bridge. Uh, so Latasha starts off talking about her experience traveling to Rwanda and interacting with people who had been using Christian names to introduce themselves and they found it very Western. Uh, a sentence that she wrote in the foreword says they were being taught that God wasn't in their culture and they must conform to the whiteness to be to whiteness, to be closer to God. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could speak just as we, you know, dive <laughs> into yeah. the conversation. The first question, could you speak to the ways the Western church has racialized the gospel in order to fit a certain cultural contextualized narrative? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting because missiology, um, as it is today is fully really contextualized for the Western world and not for the rest of the world. And so when missionaries go into different parts of the world, um, there is this, uh, underlying message that's been sold to them that says, what you have is better than everybody else's. That's why you're going, not necessarily, the message of, you know, Jesus died on the cross for everyone. Therefore, we must go and share that good news to them and allow them to experience him in the culture that they already have that has been given to them by God himself. And so when you look at the attempts to evangelize in different parts of the world, specifically in Africa, um, I mean, from the Catholic Church, it was colonization. But then when uh, Protestants start coming in, they typically started out by uh, starting schools, you know, and it's so interesting because the reason those schools were started was not for the missionaries to go and be a part of the culture and learn how those people already are learning and growing and kind of to uh, build on of that but to start a western way of thinking way of education and kind of continue a different way of colonizing cultures and you know languages and so in most of these countries that uh protestant uh christians um you know have uh, received the gospel through western missionaries it's through missionary schools is through being told that their names or their cultures don't really Uh, signify who God is. Therefore, they have to conform to whiteness or white culture or Western culture in order to be close to God. But that is because the limitation of the cross-cultural training, the limitation that really white whiteness and the supremacy of white ideology had on the goer to not think about the rest of the world as a creation of God to engage and to grow in and to learn from and to you know, kind of collaborate and build something beautiful out of, they were taught that what they had was only uh, what was needed to evangelize. So they made it a point to conform people into themselves rather than into Christ. So unfortunately, as Tasha talks about, 
you know, in the forward of the book, some of those outcomes were, um, you know, people in different parts of the, the world renaming themselves. And she actually says, um, you know, they're like some of their names, they, their meaning was like light of God or, you know, temple of God is, for example, my name is temple of God. Mekdes means holy temple of God. So can you imagine if somebody renamed me? Um, you know, I had quite a few uh, interactions here in the U.S. where people would say, what's Mekdes? Can I call you M or can I call you Mech? And I'm like, no, uh, you can't. And so, you know, that's because I know you know, what my name means. When my parents named me, it was more of like a prophecy over my life that I would become, you know, a holy temple of the the God that we serve. And so to take away my name is to take away the blessing and of my family and the identity that, you know, they, they desire for me to live up to. And so there's a lot in a name and in a culture uh, that has been robbed um, you know, out of these mission movements. You're, you're really speaking to the ethnocentrism that we really carry into our relationships yeah. and how we want other people to come to our center um, mm -hmm. so that we remain more comfortable. And really the whole premise of your book is about mutuality yeah. and how we live in, in mutual relationships with our neighbors across the world. And I'll be honest, you challenged me to even, I mean, I, at Kindred Exchange, we're, we're so focused on this and still I mess this up so often. It feels like I can't escape from my own privilege mm -hmm. and it's, and it impacts so many relationships that I have. Um, so, you know, as you push on that and as you challenge us to think about our social locations, I, I want to speak, a, I want to ask you to speak a little bit um, when you feel like mutuality is the best goal for relationships. Mm -hmm. And if there is ever a time when submission to mm -hmm. another culture or to a people group would maybe be more appropriate. Yeah, I think submission is appropriate when you are going into a new culture, you need to have the ability to learn and to kind of understand how people function because as a visitor you are you know you're an outsider and um, you're being hosted and being welcomed it's just uh, I think uh, the etiquette of you know being in another person's home for example is to understand how they run their home and you know do the dishes before you go to bed if that's what they do or put them in the dishwasher or whatever it may be. Um, so I think we have to be sensitive and submit to other cultures when we are, you know, outsiders going in to understand what the norm is so that we don't impose our norms on them and create dysfunction. Um, and I think mutuality um, should be the goal of any relationship, obviously. But I think uh, mutuality comes from the host, like the host has to extend that mutuality. So you as the goer, I think you submit to the overall larger context, but then the receiver has to extend mutuality and say, hey, you, we're going to give you this one room, for example, in our home, and you can do, you know, you go work and pay for the electricity bill, and then we'll provide the rest. Like it's a, so that the mutuality invitation comes from the host and the, the receiver or the guest is the one that says, okay, I can, you know, function in this mutuality. They can say, you know what? I don't have the ability to chip in this much. Would you be able to reduce the amount 
for me and kind of get to a point where both are benefit beneficiaries of the deal that they make. The unfortunate thing with Western mission um, is that the Western culture is so dominant that it doesn't know how to be a guest, right? And so you go into a different context and then you have all this money that you have been told you have to use um, build a school, you know, go and start a, you know, a hospital or all these things, which are really great, but you have not sat down to see how people are already functioning. Um, therefore, instead of be being a guest, you become, um, you know, a dictator in a sense, you know, and you become an, a very unwelcomed um, guest. Although people might need the money, they just can't get wait to get rid of the actual guest himself. And so I think that might be an easier way of understanding mutuality. And that's so, so helpful to frame it that way. My my mind was was going in that direction, thinking about the time I've spent in, in extended years in, in Southeast Asia, time in East Africa, mm -hmm. in the way that although we are entering into someone else's space, we don't always enter with our own hospitality or our mm -hmm. own submission to that culture. We, we know the right things to say, but mm -hmm. we, our actions don't always present align, yeah. in, mm -hmm. in a lot, yeah, in alignment with, with the words that we're saying. So what are some clues that you've kind of followed and noticed that someone might be posturing to claim the value mm -hmm. of mutuality, but mm -hmm. they're not really bearing the fruit of mutuality? Yeah, so it's actually uh, been interesting as I was writing the book out, I, I did a lot of research. I spoke with uh, executive leaders of mission organizations, some of the largest ones that we, if I named, that you would know of. And I keep hearing uh, these leaders say to me, we have mutual partners, you know, all of our staff is local leaders. All of, you know, the things that we do is run by locals and they define mutuality by diversity in a sense, you know, by diversifying their staff, they think that they're actually accomplishing mutuality, where in reality, you know, the, the board members that are making all the decisions are all, you know, Westerners, mainly, you know, white men uh, who are sitting in these spaces and making um, the decision. I have have nothing against white men but when there's a lot of them the power dynamic shifts you know and there's no lack of women or women of color here in the U.S. that could sit in those boardrooms there's no lack of immigrants who have accomplished so much in their uh, communities here in the United States that have the expertise and the heart to reach back out to their own communities back home that could sit on these you know boards and help uh, with stirring the organization towards mutuality, but you don't see that happening in the boardrooms where the most power is possessed in that space. And so whatever, you know, function comes out of that conversation boils down to a local leader who looks like the locals, but who is doing what he's been told to do by these people who are so far removed and are not a part of the culture. And so, again, that is not mutuality. Diversifying your, you know, your staff is not mutuality. Mutuality is when you actually have let's say a local board that makes decisions. So when you have a board member here in the United 
space, they may be able to make decisions on finances, you know, how much can we send or, um, you know, like how do we uh, fulfill perimeters set by our, our state or government, That those types of things obviously need to be handled here. But once the money is sent, there needs to be trust and mutuality to trust the people that are on the ground who are making specific decisions that are going to impact their own community um, and just trusting that we are only doing our side and our part because we can hear from the U.S. and then they're going to do their part without any limitations or Western uh, goals and metrics set on them and kind of this iron fist that they feel the pressure to please uh, a lot of times. And so I would say, you know, that I think that is an indicator for me when people say like we have a staff that rents everything and I'm like, ah, who makes the decisions? Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm thinking back to my time in an organization in Southeast Asia. It, you know, culturally speaking, we would we would we would say all of the things that we would say in the boardroom in the United States, but it didn't translate to the context because we were working in a culture where honor and shame were the exactly. drivers of our mm -hmm. interactions. And so even if a question was asked, that mm -hmm. didn't mean that the people on our staff felt the agency to speak directly because exactly. culturally direct communication was not something that was practiced or or valued mm -hmm. in the same way that we practice it in a Western context. So, mm -hmm. you know, it took me years to develop relationships with individuals where I kept repeating every day, I value your direct communication with me. You don't mm -hmm. have to practice that outside of this relationship, but uh, I welcome your true thoughts and your true leadership style. Uh, and, you know, that took probably three years. So I'm thinking about one close friend that I had there who who ended up leading the the vocational training center uh, that we were starting. And I think it took me three years to get my first mm -hmm. direct conversation from her. Wow. Once that happened, it unlocked so much mm -hmm. of her vision and her her trust with me. And we've continued to be such good friends. But I, I think that just points to the fact that you can't say something and it actually be practiced without yeah. developed agency, right? Friends, there is one company whose products and practices I regularly sing angelic praises. Able is committed to the very best models of ethical supply chains and healing-centered employment. From the cotton used in their products to the way they run the boardroom, I feel confident choosing my Able clothes to wear out of my house each day. I've been a loyal customer for a decade. I love their extended sizes, their leather goods. I am actually looking at three bags of theirs on my coat rack right now. And I love their gold jewelry. I even named my last kid after them. Just kidding. It's a different spelling. But I've seen the backside of Able. I've walked through their design studio, their jewelry workshop, their warehouses. I've even co-led a business workshop with Able's founder, Barrett Ward. So when I tell you I love this company, it is at the top of my list for ethical wearable goods. Shop online and use the code UPWARD15 for a discount on anything you like. That's upward one five. Wear it with pride and use your purchasing power to force exploitative businesses to change their company practices for good. One thing that you said in, in your book that I'm probably going to put on my wall in my next office is the difference between what Africans think the white man has done mm -hmm. to them and what the white man thinks he has done for them is like night and day. 
So as mm-hmm. we talk again more about this mutuality, can you can you expand more on that statement? Yeah. Um, so, you know, being an African myself, an Ethiopian woman, and having been called to serve in majority white spaces since I've moved to the United States, I've sat in several fundraising efforts, you know, um, several mission recruiting um, events where the idea that, you know, the white man or the white saviorism, uh, this idea is what we're exporting because we are so desperately needed uh, has like flooded me, right? And so sitting in those spaces as one of the very few people from that exact location that they're talking about, I keep thinking like, wow, they really think they are something else, you know? I mean, it's one thing to say, um, you know, the Lord is calling us to go um, and this is the sacrifices that we have to make to go are such and such. Therefore, let's go ahead and, you know, share the gospel. But it literally is languages that are so reductive. Uh, For example, like, you know, someone will come from a mission trip and say, um, when that just looking at the, their faces, the smile that this gift brought them, I know that it changed their world, you know, like it's so materialistic, so reductive of the human experience. Um, and so I always think about my goodness, like, what, what do they think they're doing, you know, to these spaces, to these people? And then I talk to the people on the other end and they say, oh, yeah, they're going to come and give us some gifts. We'll take those. But it has not touched the surface of the core of the reality of these, you know, cultures and individuals. Um, and I think I, I, you know, I wrote this line after quoting um, uh, um, somebody else that recently, like, I think it was in 2016, wrote an article saying, like, making a claim for Western young Western Christians to go to Africa. And he was basically saying, you know, Africans have, uh, uh, white people have lost their lives going to Africa. And we've taken Christianity in the 19th century to this continent. And we've laid down our lives. And he's just talking about how, you know, him and his people are martyrs for the gospel. And these, basically, these savages have, you know, killed them in the process Um, And I remember reading that and saying, first of all, Christianity did not go into Africa in the 19th century. It was their first century, Uh, you know, but also like this martyrdom that you're talking about may not be a martyrdom, but it could be, um, you know, self-protective measures that people are making because you have invaded their lands, you have taken their money, you Uh, you know, um, sucked up their resources, like the way that we see the West um, is not the same as how the West would view us historically. You know, there's animosity that we don't talk about. We make it sound so pretty that, you know, when you go and do this, you get this uh, instant gratification. And it's very similar to uh, the racial justice and reconciliation conversation conversation that we're having here in the United States where, you know, people want to just sweep things under the rug and say, let's just reconcile, you know, everything's going to be, that was in the past. Well, it's not in the past because, you know, for us, our reality is still, we're living in poverty. Our people are living in poverty. Why? Because of, you know, a lot of the 
the injustices that took place several, a, a few, you know, a few hundred years ago. And so there's just these uh, discrepancies in how uh, history is told uh, to especially Western Christians so that the machine of sending the masses continues, this multi-million dollar industry continues. Um, and I think that's a lie that does not support the gospel. God is powerful and able to to uh, you know make sure that everyone around the world hears of uh, the gospel without any of us. He just chooses to use us, and it is because of His mercy and His love for us that we get to participate in the work that He has given us. So I don't think we need to rely on you know false narratives to create this false engine of um, mobilization to send people to parts of the world for nothing. Like it, it bears no fruit. It's just more miscommunication, misunderstanding. We keep passing each other um, because we're not basing the work that we do on truth. Um, so, yeah. So rich, so rich. Um, it makes me think about when when we traveled again to to Southeast Asia to live there, there were seventy six mm -hmm. languages spoken in the country where we were living, and only two of those languages had a Bible that had been translated mm -hmm. into their language, and it and it rubbed up against everything that I had ever been taught to believe, and that was that unless people heard directly from Scripture, they could not be saved. Um, and, mm. and I had to really go back and wrestle through what I believed about God, how I believed mm. that he pursued his people and mm -hmm. how he practiced justice in, in condemning those who had mm -hmm. never been able to hear. Was that mm -hmm. my fault that they mm -hmm. didn't have a, a Bible in their language when they didn't even have a written language, you know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. go back and question those things. And I thought, man, surely we don't serve a God who would be so distant that he would keep himself from others being able to feel their way back to him. Yeah, and well. so you speak to this in your book as well. And you say, surely we can't believe that God is so small that he awaits Western theology and white saviorism to reach his people around the world. How mm -hmm. would you expand on, on that statement in this context? Yeah, I think, um, again, the basis of Western missiology is on the West's ability to go into all the nations, you know, and uh, that's just not biblical, you know, like when <laughs> Jesus sent his disciples, uh, he sent them as exiles, you know, they literally uh, were kicked out of their country, therefore they had to flee into other parts of the world and share the gospel uh, with with everyone that came across them. So we leave out this idea that Christianity is a faith of, you know, those that have counted the cost to follow Jesus and pay the sacrifices for that. It's not a path for glory and, you know, glamour and riches and I mean, Jesus had no place to rest his head. He kept telling his disciples, like, if you follow me, this is what's going to happen to you. And we have significantly left out that message and keep telling the story that we have to institutionalize that gospel. We have to create a perfect program that is going to reach each individual. And we have to measure it, you know, and we have to make sure that each tribe and tongue is 
reached, like how in the world, I, I feel like we worship, you know, this idea that the West is the owner of missions rather than that this God who has made heaven and earth, this God who has, who count, who knows the numbers of hair in my head, you know, who takes care of the, 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 you know, the birds in the sky and feeds all the animals of the world. Like this amazing, magnificent God does not have a metrics to measure the success. You think like he has no idea how to talk about his own vision for salvation for his creation like how self self um worshipful are we like I don't even know what word to use honestly we're just so <laughs> self-focused I think that's probably the best word is we are so self-focused and self-absorbed to believe that unless we see it we touch it we count it we experience it that God is not at work and that is a lie from the pit of hell like Jesus is the king of kings the lord of lords um, scripture talks about how we know in parts, right? So we really have to accept that reality that the things that are revealed to us, we know in parts. And by knowing in parts, that should actually motivate us to um, be in awe of the God that we don't even know, you know, about because we're told you only know in parts, like, wait until everything is revealed to to you in glory in heaven then you will know God to to his fullness and to his you know and to the extent of who he is and that's when we are full of this worshipful experience that says holy 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 we worship and we get up and see God in his fullness doing the work that he does and we go back and say holy holy but we don't have this beautiful vision of Christianity you know that sacrifice and suffering pushes us further and further into humility that says that the savior that we worship is so much bigger than us the work that we've been called to is so tiny and minor and it's just a footnote in the work that he has done centuries before us and that he is going to continue to do after us but to base all of that on our ability to quantify and understand the work that he is doing is foolishness, you know, in, in my opinion. And that is, to me, that's spiritual poverty, you know. And that's why I challenge because although I grew up in a poor um, country, you know, in terms of worldly measures, uh, I grew up in awe and worship and kind of this sense of reverence for who God was, there was always this unknownness about God that we feared, you know, that our culture is based on that fear of God, you know, the one, the almighty, he does amazing things. And so to base all of that off of somebody else's opinion or experience of him would be I think a disservice um, to, to my own personal spiritual growth, but also to my kids and those that I am discipling and I want to empower to follow God. At the end of the day, the goal is to follow him. It's not, you know, to, to define um, who God is because he, we cannot do that. We know in parts. So for us 
to have this heart to pursue him day in and day out so that we continue to know more of him is the goal of mission, you know, the, and so I think we, 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 that's just a disservice to put God in a box. Well, we've really trapped ourselves in Western culture mm -hmm. by trying to measure everything, like yeah. you said, and putting such a premium on knowledge in the way that we, we address our relationship with God. It is all about, it's all about valuing knowledge and what we can consume about him so that we can measure ourselves against other people. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. and that really speaks to the institutionalization of the American church, mm -hmm. um, the uh, the way that industry has impacted the way that we measure things and we're obsessed with our metrics and how do we know if our churches grow, you know, like we have, we have valued those, those things from industry and they've gotten mm -hmm. so messy with our, our theology. Mm -hmm. So you know, in, in your worldview and the way that you approach God, it is, it, it values the Holy Spirit over mm -hmm. valuing knowledge and approach mm -hmm. to your theology. And I think the global South as a whole could really teach the American church a lot about this. Mm -hmm. What do you see as, as the really big defining differences in the way the church functions when it, when it values the Holy Spirit over strictly knowledge? Yeah, I think again, this, um, this, dogmatic uh, belief that you know god functions in this way he does not work in that way you know these um types of beliefs are dangerous and again what i value of god is that um he reveals himself you know obviously he has spoken his word i believe that the word of god is fully you know um his word that it is it, it is uh, the truth of life that it is um, what we need to base our belief in so I don't have a belief outside of scripture um, I am a very orthodox you know uh, theologically orthodox believer um, but I do not believe that God does not perform miracles you know um, because he has done mighty and great things in my life that I have seen. Uh, so I'm not going to trust a theologian who tells me that does, that does not exist over my own personal experience that has produced fruit after fruit in my life and in the communities that have raised me. Um, and so these types of dogmatic beliefs that, you know, worship knowledge more than they worship God himself uh, and sometimes I think this question about the gift of the Holy Spirit is uh, scary to the West because, again, it can't be measured, can't be controlled. So when you're used to having specific groups of people in power who get to dictate and say what can be done and not done, they need to make sure there are no variables. But the Holy Spirit is kind of that variable that makes everything kind of uncertain. And again, <laughs> that's why, you know, you need... He, cannot be controlled right and so but if you just say everything in the bible is what we believe then it's already written you can interpret it the way you want to and have people you know submit to that but when you add the power this this miracle work that, that happens when you add healing or you know whatever it is that people experience in their lives there's that 
power that is mightier than one man's ability to define things. Uh, so I think that the, the core of the belief system of this dogmatic theology kind of falls apart and we just cannot do that, right? And so um, I think that's the major difference from how I experienced God growing up, how I, um, you know, it's not easy. I understand why people would want to control theology so that the outcome is a specific way. They're trying to protect their sheep from going this way or that way. I understand, but I don't think it is our our role to do that. You know, that again, it is God's role um, to lead his people. And it is our choice to follow him um, in step with the spirit or to walk out of step. So I think people need to be given the freedom to worship him however they, you know, please, but also to follow him or not follow him. It is a choice that they have. You can't pull people into heaven. You can't uh, trick them into heaven or you can't leave information out so that they just follow what you say. You just, you have to present the whole truth as it is. And I believe that the the path is narrow, a very narrow path. I mean, that's what scripture tells us. So I'm not about to, you know, say that everybody who hears the gospel is, you know, going to heaven. That is not, I think it's a specific choice that we make. And it's a daily choice to, you know, carry our cross and follow him. But we we have we can't be intellectually dishonest with people and say, you know what, we experience the Holy Spirit and his gifts on mission trips because they don't have cars. So somehow like something miraculously appeared, but here, because we have cars, like God does not work through, you know, his spirit in that way. Well, there are other ways that you don't experience God, that he can reveal himself in mighty ways. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just intellectually dishonest to limit certain p works of the Holy Spirit to like remote parts of the world and then deny him that power and ability when it comes to our territory, because we are so obsessed with controlling the outcome. And there's so many, so many rich things to, <laughs> to contemplate. Um, and I, I can't thank you enough for your time. If you've got if you've got one more minute, I would love to ask yes. you. I'm sure we could sit all day and tell stories of of ways that um, bringing critique to a church, especially coming from a different context and being a missionary to the white church, uh, has has boxed you out. And and I, I, I'm sure that you have stories uh, that you could tell me all day. What's something as you are hosting these conversations um, and really ministering to the hearts? of those of us who are receiving this on the Western side of the gospel. What's something that's giving you hope? You know, what's giving me hope is the desire to listen and learn. I've been pleasantly surprised by how well my book has been received. And I think um, the Lord is at work. I really am hopeful. I think the message came at a time when people are asking the question of like, something is not working, you know, something is broken. And so I think people are in a, in a space of um, wanting to learn and contemplate, you know, the efforts that they put in. I, I don't think all of Western missions work is, you know, wrong or that everything about its, its history is um, dark, you know, if you read my book, you'll see that I've tried to 
pay my respects to uh, faith heroes of the West, you know, that have sacrificed a lot to carry the gospel around the world. My critique comes from just this um, institutionalization of the gospel, institutionalization of um, of um, missions and kind of sending the masses instead of the few faithful followers of Jesus. Um, and so I am encouraged that there is a desire to do that. There are people who are listening um, instead of being defensive. I think they are trying to learn and understand what people are saying about this. So I'm very hopeful. I'm very thankful that God has allowed me to speak when it was time for people to listen. Cause um, you know, I'm sure there, there are others before me that have been saying this that were not received well. So it's been just a, a, a hopeful and exciting experience. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord will do um, as we move forward with this conversation. That's awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to pick up your book. Um, it's called A Just Mission, Laying Down Power and Embracing Mutuality. Mecca, thank you so much for your time. Where would you like people to find you and follow you if the work that you're doing? Yeah, so my full name, mechdeshadis.com, is that's my website. But if you go to any social media platform and just type in mechdeshadis, you'll find me. Uh, I think all of my accounts are, all my handles are mechdeshadis. So um, Instagram is where I'm mostly active. <laughs> Perfect. That's, that's where I hang out too. That's great. Well, thank yeah. you again so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening in, and we are always eager to hear from you as you process these nuanced topics. Shoot me an email at lauren at kindredexchange.co or find me on Instagram at upwardlydependent. Of course, I always welcome your honest reviews on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast, or you can engage with us on our Kindred Exchange Instagram at kindred.exchange. Just do me one favor. As we process and grow together, stay rooted in truth that you know is absolute. And that is the fact that we are finite beings and therefore rely on something much bigger than ourselves. That's what the Upwardly Dependent Life is all about. One million thank yous to our amazing podcast team. Susan Knox is our podcast manager, Kate Kim, our post-production editor, and Abby Littlefield, our incredible producer. Music written and recorded by Grant and Sarah Goodman and produced by Elijah Hester.